Howdy, everybody. How's everybody doing? What a glorious weekend, hey? Just so amazing. All of that rain, and then all of a sudden, we're like, we don't know what you are, sunshine. We've, <laughs> it's like, nice to meet you. This is, this is such a beautiful weekend. So grateful for all of you who are brand new to Jesus, who are just coming and you're checking things out. Uh, maybe a friend invited you today. Um, this is part of your long weekend plans, and you were drugged to church, so welcome. <laughs> and uh, if you are kind of on this journey exploring who Jesus is, um, we're glad that you're here because we're in this series. This is week six of a seven-week series on the kingdom of God. Um, I think it's like about-ish, um, 162 times that the kingdom of God is brought up in, in Jesus' teachings. And so what is this kingdom? What is this all about? And that's, that's the question we're asking. And uh, kids, I want to welcome you. Kids, can you just wave uh, to me? Are you here in the room? Kids, kids, yes, cool, great. Um, I'm going to need your help here in a little bit. Um, I'm going to need you guys to shout out some things. And so in the first service, a bunch of kids shouted out some great answers. And so I'm going to need your help in a little bit. But we're asking uh, this question what is the kingdom of God? And here's an answer that I love from a Bible teacher named Tim Mackey. He says this, the kingdom of God is how God is taking back his world. How God is taking back his world. And um, it's how God is putting the world back together. And so uh, kids, some of you have heard of Humpty Dumpty. How many of you have heard of Humpty Dumpty? Is this story still shared? Not many of you, actually. So yeah, there's this little story of this egg man. <laughs> let's, let's try to describe this story. This story. Uh, he's sitting on a wall, and he's an egg, and he falls off the wall, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great... And then all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again, right? Which really is just a sad story. Is that how it ends, by the way? I didn't ask the first service this. Isn't there more to it? Well, there's more to God's story. Okay, just, you know, because he's all about putting Humpty back together again. He's about putting broken things back together again. And so uh, when, when you hear the kingdom of God, you should be thinking about how God is putting the world back together again, taking back his world. And we've used the image of Japanese pottery called kintsugi um, to describe this process that God um, is, is using to put the world back together. So Japanese pottery, uh, the, the, the pot breaks, and then the potter uses this golden glue to put the pottery back together. And in many ways, it's more beautiful um, than, than the original. And, and so I think this is a, a beautiful description of how God is putting a broken world back together. This is the kingdom of God. He is the great potter, and he's putting us back together. Um, I, so kids, I need your help really quick. Um, can you guys shout out uh, something that starts off really small, but grows to become something huge. There's lots of examples in the world, but just can you think of something that starts off really small? A seed. Yes. Boom. Nailed it. Seed. Anyone else? An ant. That's great. I'm sure there's like tiny, tiny ants that grow to be bigger ants. It's very true. Anyone else? Oh, so sorry. Okay. I'm, I, I, uh, I think I listened to music too loud when I was younger, so uh, my ears don't work. Okay. Someone else? A baby. Yes, that's really good. A baby. Yes, yes. Okay, two more. Two more. A, a, a cow. A cat. A tree. Yes. A tree. Okay, one more. A promise. Ooh, interesting. 
Minecraft. Minecraft, yes. In the, first, in the first service, somebody said Lego, which I thought was great. So Minecraft and Lego, this is great. Jesus probably could have updated his teachings today if he was uh, just, you know, just like Minecraft. The kingdom of God is just like, that's great. Kids, thank you so much. Um, if you would like to do this, uh, kids, some of you, if you have a blank sheet of paper or in your booklet, you can draw a picture. And I'd love to see it afterwards if you want to run up and show it to me after the service of something that you think is really small and that grows to become something really big. So, um, uh, in, in the first service, I got a palm tree. A girl drew a palm tree, which I thought was really cool. Probably starts off, I don't know how palm trees start. I'm assuming it's a seed, uh, <laughs> really small. And then it grows to become a really big palm tree. So, we, this is to get us to start to think about how the kingdom of God grows and the DNA of the kingdom of God, as it were. And so hopefully that is allowing you to think through some of these things. I have an image, um, and it's of an acorn that turns into an oak tree. That was the one I thought of. I was like, oh, um, a tiny little acorn that grows into become this massive oak tree. And in the acorn is an entire future of an oak tree, right? And it's crazy to think about. I don't know how big an acorn is, but I'm guessing about this big. And, um, and it grows to become this massive tree. And so Today, what I want to do is try to capture Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of small beginnings. A kingdom of small beginnings. All right, let's pray. So Jesus, we, we want to capture what your kingdom is like. And you described it like a mustard seed and like yeast that slowly grows and so I pray that you would teach us uh, how to be faithful in this kingdom that has small beginnings, how we can stay obedient and faithful in the small things, and that you have promised to grow all of these little moments of trust, obedience, steps of faith, even though they seem so small, God, we trust that you are growing something beautiful. And we pray that you would move in this room. And, and God, I, I thank you for those who, who are part of the live stream or who are here today who have come despite being discouraged. I want to lift them specifically up to you. Those who are discouraged, who are feeling like they've gotten nothing, that when they look at their Christian life or they look at their own life, they feel like there's just nothing there. But God, we know we come today to worship the God who can take small things, the nothing of our life, and you can make it beautiful, and you can grow it. And so we place our trust in you again. Would you come and grow something powerful here today? We love you and thank you. Amen. All right, so uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I, I was at Trinity from 1998 to 2002. And so when I was 22, I went home, back to the United States for a couple of years. And to do what every uh, parent uh, really is just so excited about is to see their son graduate with a degree from university and then come home, move back home and join a band. And so that's, that's, that's what I did. And uh, you know, they were gracious. And so I was living at home for two years uh, and trying to make this band thing uh, happen with three of my friends. But the thing is, is that when you're in a band, uh, you're kind of an, a night owl, right? So you're up 
late at night and, and sleep till lunch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the, at the, for some reason at this zone, so, you know, so I'm not married, there's no kids, uh, I had no cell phone, no computer, no car, my brother and I shared a junky car, uh, no bills, my parents were letting me live rent-free uh, to try to get this band off the ground. So I had a lot of freedom uh, during those two years, and, uh, and what, what, how do, do you fill in the gaps when you're not writing music? What do you do with your time? Well, we were all Christians. I had a bunch of friends, so it was not only the three guys I was with, but a bunch of other young Christian guys in their 20s, and so we're not partying, out partying. So you kind of come up with these odd things that you do, uh, and one of the odd things we did for many hours, like I'm telling you, many, many hours, I feel like I could get a degree in this, but it's the game of risk. Uh, we played Risk. I don't know, any Risk fans out there? Uh, love, hate, there we go, one. No one on this side, two, three, okay, four, all right. Okay, so four of you in the room uh, know the experience of Risk, and um, Risk is just such a, a, a brutal game, really. Um, and so you're collecting pieces of, of the, on the board, and you're trying to accomplish world domination. Um, and you're trying to basically obliterate your enemy. This is the point of the game. Um, it's how to win friends. And uh, so we, we kind of got out of control. And for a while, we built a life-size wrist board. So it was like, it filled a whole garage. And we like ordered these large figurines about this big. They were like army, US Army <laughs> green men. And then we spray painted them different colors. And then we moved them with brooms. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then and, and while we watched a, uh, Lord of the Rings Marathon Extended Edition uh, playing Life Size Risk, and then we, at one point we hung a camera in a room uh, because we just didn't like the chatter, right? Because the chatter is annoying around you when you're playing Risk and you really want to focus. So we, so, so we had a camera that hung off the ceiling and we were live streaming the event in a room down the hall. So there was a group of, of risk watchers that had popcorn and were yelling and screaming and they joined teams, but in the actual room itself, it was quiet. And uh, we were playing intense risk. So anyway, that gives you an indicator of how I wasted my time. Uh, and so anyway, so in risk with world domination and world power, when it's your turn, what do you do? You cash in your cards, you create the largest army ever, right? And anyone who plays risk, you know, you win by starting in Australia, right? You, you just usually, and then you move and you just take control or South America. And, um, and what do you do? You, you beat your enemy. You, you make big gains on the board. You take ground, you make a big impact, you start a revolution and, um, and, and, and when I was thinking about the kingdom of God, I thought, you know, if it was up to me to how to design the kingdom of God, that's how I would design it. It's like a risk board, right? You, um, you, you, you gather all of your power and you make big gains um, by force. Because when you and I naturally hear a kingdom, we think an army, uh, we think a battle, we think war, right? It's how we've been accustomed to think about kingdoms. But the kingdom of God is very, very different. It's very different. Unfortunately, many Christians have acted like the kingdoms of this world when trying to advance the Christian cause. M many of us have looked way more like a risk board than like the way Jesus describes the kingdom. So how does he describe it? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. 
He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. (laughs) You can imagine Jesus' followers. They're ready for the revolution. They're ready for the kingdom of God to come. And you don't know what expectations they had. And then Jesus says, wait for it. It's like a mustard seed. (laughs) Underwhelming, to say the least. (laughs) It's like yeast. You know, when when someone's cooking, like it works through the dough. (laughs) Like you can just imagine they're sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, gotcha. Where's the risk board, (laughs) right? What about the army? What about kicking Rome out of here? What a, where's the power? Mustard seed and yeast in dough. Growth in the kingdom of God looks, looks like tiny seeds and yeast. It sounds so small. Look at parable number one, mustard seed. The kingdom seems so small, just like a mustard seed. No doubt the kingdom will have an incredible multiplication and growth in the future, like a tree with birds sitting in its branches, right? It's massive. What happened with the kingdom of God? Well, look around this room. You know about Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus started with a tiny group of 12, and they had a larger group of 72, and then there were hundreds around him, hundreds around them, and it became a movement. And it started off so small. And now look, on the other side of the globe, here we are worshiping Jesus on a Sunday. It's a massive oak tree. It's a massive uh, tree or a banquet like like the yeast in the dough. It's huge. So yes, there is huge growth, but it started small. Now, some of you biblically sharp people may have noticed that this is a hyperlink to the book of Daniel chapter four. Did anyone catch that? It's Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. Um, Daniel... Uh, going back hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, Daniel, who loved God, was in Babylon, and he was called in to interpret a dream from the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it was a little intimidating because as Daniel starts to interpret the dream, uh, the king dreams of a tree, this beautiful tree where birds sit in its branches. And uh, Daniel's got some bad news because he's like, ah, king, I wish I could tell you that this dream of this tree Uh, was about another kingdom, but it's about you. And this tree gets chopped down, right? This tree gets chopped down. So his big dream of this massive tree was this image of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. And all the nations would sit in its branches. It would cover the world, but the tree gets chopped down. So it's interesting that Jesus, when he's teaching a bunch of Jewish people who would have known this story, he uses this image. He picks this idea of a kingdom so big that the nations will rest in its branches. One of those would become Canada, right? Uh, We, who are Canadians, part of the kingdom of God, the true kingdom, right? Um, And it's interesting that Jesus picks up this image, right, of this true kingdom that will not get chopped down. But it's important here to see that it starts small, so small. All right, look at parable number two, the yeast and the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Again, underwhelming image. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Um, Fun quick memory uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon. Remember two years ago when there was no yeast anywhere? That's a fun memory, hey? 
All of you who are hoarding yeast during the pandemic, I hope you have confessed your sins. <laughs> you who bought too many. Um, but Jesus says that yeast is mixed into the flour and worked through the dough. The word for mix is the Greek word encrypto. Encrypto, to put into, hide or hide in. So some of you who are technology people, computer people, you'll see encryption there. Encrypto or cryptocurrency. This is this is the word that you, that it comes from the Greek here, in crypto, to hide. So this is how the kingdom works. It's hidden in the flower. It works through the flower. The small amount of yeast works through 60 pounds of flour. It's, it's, it's meant to, to, to serve a banquet. 60 pounds of flour to, could feed, you know, over 100 people, 100 to 150 people. And in Jesus' day, this would have been a small Jewish village, Right? So Jesus is describing this little bit of yeast that works through the dough and can feed a village. And it it can't be seen, right? The yeast is so small. The kingdom of God does not come if we're following Jesus with this attack on a risk board. The kingdom works somehow in and through people in the city, in the culture, affecting the culture around it working from the inside out. (laughs) I mean, just so you know, I don't have time to go into this, but think about your job. Where does Jesus have you as a member, citizen of the kingdom of God in your workplace, like yeast working through the dough, that every decision you make is actually affecting the outcome, right? And he has each of you in different places. And none of us can be where each other are. We're all doing different things, but The kingdom of God is just working in and through. It's not coming like some army with a frontal attack. It's working in and through the culture, through the city. So beautiful when you think about it. Mustard seeds and yeast in the dough. He's describing the humble, small ways in which the kingdom of God actually changes things. In the book of Zechariah, we read these words. Who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise the day of small things? Several hundred years before Jesus, uh, the people of Israel returned to their land after being in exile in Babylon, like, like that story with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And they had to start life over again. And their temple had been destroyed, um, and they longed to rebuild it, Right? And so this new, as this new sanctuary is being built, this new temple, the foundation was laid, and, and all the people of Israel come to look at the foundation, right? And they're like, da-da, it's like a ribbon cutting, you know? Here it is. And the young people of Israel are super excited. They're like, woohoo, this is amazing. This is so great. We're rebuilding the temple. We had heard about the temple. We're rebuilding it. And the older people in Israel start weeping because they look at it and they're like, this looks nothing like the old one, right? They remember the good old days. They remember Solomon's temple and how incredible Solomon's temple was. And so they're staring at this foundation. And the prophet Zechariah has a word for these older people. He comes to them and he says, who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise the day of small things? This may look small to you, but God is going to grow something incredible and beautiful. Don't despise this. Zechariah knew that what looks small now would become great. And the people had no idea what God was building. Yes, the physical temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem 
Absolutely. Some of you who know the history of Israel, you'll know that this was a second temple and it would be rebuilt. Absolutely. But God was actually building a greater temple. And for those of us who have eyes to see when we see Jesus' life, we see that Jesus himself becomes the temple. He becomes the center of worship. He becomes the place where heaven and earth meet. And the people had no idea the kind of temple God would build. We have no idea what God is building in the small things, the steps of faith, the moments of prayer. What is it that God's building? Who dares despise the day of small things? Um, for a number of years, I, I, had a, uh, I have had a growing um, frustration with Christian publishing. So I don't know if any of you have felt this frustration before, <laughs> but I don't know if you've walked around. Some of you might be new to Jesus. You've never had this experience, but there are these things called Christian bookstores. It doesn't mean the bookstore has become a Christian. It just means that in the store, which is a secular building, there's lots of Christian-y things in there. Anyway, so you can walk around and you can buy uh, books and CDs. And I don't know if people still buy CDs, but you can go around. You can do that. You can buy um, all kinds of stuff. But you can also buy, you can buy testaments. That's a play on words, testaments. I don't know if I still offer those. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there's a whole book section. Okay, so you can walk around and you can read uh, all kinds of books uh, that aren't the Bible, but they're trying to encourage people in their faith with Jesus. And so uh, I, I started to notice that whoever it was in Christian publishing, they were, there must have been these meetings where they were like, we need all the titles of the books to sound really big and extreme or like eye-catching or something. So um, I, I started to notice that there were a lot of books with revolution in the title. And so I uh, hear some real books. So The Irresistible Revolution, uh, The Day the Revolution Began, or Revolution in World Missions, or The Revolution of Character. Okay, so there's lots of revolution. And then there was lots of extreme. So these are all real book titles. So like, Extreme Faith, Extreme Prayer, Extreme Teen Bible, uh, Extreme Grandparenting. Some of you are going to want to pick that one up, okay? So this is somehow, you're sharing about Jesus with your grandkids, also on a skateboard, doing your grandparent, your extreme grandparenting. Or, or Christian books with fire in the title. There's a lot of, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Christian subculture, there's a lot of igniting, flames, fire, lots of it. So there's the fire Bible, facing the fire, church on fire, Start a Fire, which is not about how to cook s'mores, Start a Fire. And there's some really good books. I've read some of these. So, so, so then there's, like the, there's a book called Radical by David Platt. It's a good book. Radical. Or Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Or Do Hard Things by Alex and Brett Harris. And so by the time I've walked through the bookstore, I'm exhausted, right? I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, what is my Christian life like, you know? Uh, and so, so the message I'm getting is don't waste your life, do hard things in an extreme fire of a revolution. But when I look at Jesus, he seems to kind of work in an opposite way. Uh, again, with some underwhelming, uh, what seems underwhelming bits of advice. So he says, here's the deal. If you want extreme prayer, fire prayer, here's what you're going to do. Uh, you're going to go into your closet and you're going to shut the door. And the disciples are taking notes. And they're like, okay, 
Okay, go into be quiet, shut the door. And so when you give, uh, there's a bunch of people that go to the temple and they announce it with trumpets. Uh, they gave. And then he says, don't do that. Uh, what you're going to do is you're actually going to give in a way where your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And again, the disciples are probably like writing this down like, okay. Um, and when you fast, here's what you're going to do. Most people fast to, and they make it a really big deal, extreme fasting. And what they do is they look really gaunt, you know, and they, um, and they, they really want you to ask them a question. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm just fasting. And we're supposed to think, wow, you're really spiritual because you're fasting. And Jesus says, really, don't do that. What you should do is you wash your face. Put oil. He says, put oil in your hair, which is kind of the ancient. Put gel in your hair. Look normal, please. <laughs> you know, when you're fasting, just look normal. And so what Je Jesus is kind of playing this. He's going, this is what you're going to do. You're going to pray in secret and give so that your left hand isn't what your right hand is doing. And, and then he says things like this. He says, um, you should really welcome little children. Spend some time with children. Teach them about the kingdom of God. And actually, you're not going to be able to understand the kingdom unless you're like a child. Whew, okay. Seems quite small. Seems quite humble. And then he says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go visit those who have been forgotten. And then I'd like you to give a cup of cold water to somebody. And then I want you to go feed the hungry. And then here's what I want you to do. Some of you just feel like you have one talent. I want you to take that one talent and I want you to invest it. It's really small and it feels insignificant, but go for it. Don't bury it. And so, see, I know that those who wrote those books have a really good heart. And some of those books were great that I just mentioned. But we might be missing the way God wants to grow his kingdom. We might be missing it. Could it be that the king is delighted for all of us in our small steps of obedience and love and care and prayers and faithfulness, that he will take it and he'll work it all through the dough, enough to feed the world. See, he's the king. He's totally in charge. And um, I think we should be just as concerned um, about the kingdom or about the way in which the kingdom grows as we are about the kingdom itself, right? But we get frustrated, I know I get frustrated with how sometimes slow and small the work of God feels at times. It seems like God should do more dramatic things. It seems like God should burst into the scene and change everything immediately. But oftentimes, not always, but often he, he uses the small, working slowly, growing it. And what does that do? It causes me to wait. And I don't like waiting. <laughs> We live in an instant world, right? But God's not microwaving righteousness. He's slow, slow cooking, not fast food, in the kingdom of God. And we're learning to wait, and waiting isn't easy. And many of you have had to wait for things way more than I have. And you've walked years of waiting, and but faithfully praying. And I just want to tell you, God, here's those prayers. Those prayers are not going un heard unlistened to by God. They're beautiful prayers. They're, they're mustard seed prayers, right? It's like yeast in the dough. And what is he doing? He's looking for faithful followers who are obedient in the small things. Faithful followers who do not despise the day of small things. 
Scott Hubbard, writing for Desiring God, uh, wrote a great little quote, and it's a little bit longer, but I want to share it with you. He says this, quote, what will it mean for us to worship a God who works like this? It will mean praying for the big, longing for the big, and working for the big, all the while faithfully and contentedly devoting ourselves to the small. Pray for revival, and then prepare breakfast for, our, for the kids. <laughs> Dream of the knowledge of God's glory flooding the earth in Habakkuk 2.14, and then bring a taste of that glory to the neighbor next door. Preach a grand vision to dozens or hundreds on Sunday, and then sit and listen to the wounded one on Monday. The day of big things is coming. Until then, do not neglect the day of small things. If you were king, how would you start healing the world? If I asked myself that question, I, I, would, I would describe something like a risk board. I would not start the story of redemption, the story of redemption with an old couple who struggle with infertility, Abraham and Sarah. I wouldn't do it that way. That's a weird beginning, right? That's a troubling beginning of a story. I, I wouldn't start with the idea that God would become human and lie in a feeding trough. It's not how I'd start the story. I wouldn't start with a little girl in a poor town where no one's going to believe her that she carries in her womb the Son of God. So small. Who's Mary? Who would believe her? I, I wouldn't start the story with a broken Peter who would lead the church but would start by denying his Savior three times. starting in fear. I wouldn't start the story that way. I wouldn't start the story with an enemy named Saul who would persecute Christians. I wouldn't start with him, with a guy who would walk with a thorn in his side for years in ministry, in pain. That's not the way I would start the kingdom. I wouldn't start with Mary Magdalene who had been healed from the demonic and I wouldn't start in an upper room with 12 disciples and their dirty feet. I wouldn't do it that way. And my, and my way would look like a risk board. It would be take them over. It would be destroy the enemy. How would you start the kingdom? Scott Hubbard says, for all his bigness, our God has a remarkable love for the small. Some of you may have seen the movie A Hidden Life. Um, it's, uh, it's an incredible story directed by um, Malik, and it's a, it's a story of, a, of, a, of an Austrian conscientious objector, um, Franz Jagerstatter. I think I said that right, Austrians in the room. <laughs> Franz Jagerstatter, he's an Austrian farmer um, who was put to death by the Nazis for refusing to serve in the war. And it's just a powerful film, and I would encourage you, um, has anyone seen it in the room? A Hidden Life? Hidden Life. And that's got to be Kevin. Yeah, okay, there it is, yeah. <laughs> it's, you're in the dark, but it had to be Kevin. Um, uh, a Hidden Life. 
And uh, it's, it's, it's a powerful film, not for children, <laughs> but for any of you adults. And so he's this Austrian farmer uh, who loved God and wanted to remain faithful to God. And uh, he decides uh, not to serve in Hitler's army. And, and the interesting thing he's really wrestling with is, like, what is his, like, who is he? <laughs> you know, he's just an Austrian farmer. Like, if he joins the military or doesn't join Hitler's military, what does it matter? <laughs> it's not going to make any difference. And, and the one different, I mean, you could argue that the most important thing um, would be for him to serve in the military uh, so that his family, uh, you know, wouldn't be ostracized by the community. You could make that argument. But what is his one simple decision going to affect? Small decision. <laughs> At the end of the movie, there's a quote, and I want to read it to you. Um, it's, it's, it's from Middlemarch, the, the novel Middlemarch by George Eliot. And at the end of the film, we, we, we see this quote. Quote, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. He's saying a lot of the good in the world was done by a whole lot of people, and we don't visit their tombs anymore, but they live faithfully a hidden life. And it went unnoticed, but they were part of the yeast working through the dough. Their faithfulness. What I like to think is my grandmother's prayers, right? It's a hidden life. It wasn't big, revolutionary, on fire, it was small, but God used it. The number of people who live faithfully a hidden life, I think it's what we're called to in the kingdom of God. We live in such an outward promoting yourself on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and, and, and we're, we're all promoting. <laughs> it's all big. And is, what about the hidden life? The small prayers you pray, I want to encourage you, they're not going unheard. Those of you who teach little children about Jesus, you kneel down to teach them about Jesus. Your teaching is making a difference in the kingdom of God. The small moment that some of you, after a long time, are starting to open your Bible to read, that's beautiful. God sees that. The moment you begin to pray after a long time being bitter towards God, and you take a little step, and God sees that and loves that. The moment that you lift your hands in worship could feel so little, but it's a moment of surrender. The moment you call a friend who's grieving, the moment you confess your sin to a friend, the way you take small steps to turn from addiction, God sees those steps. Maybe you feel they're so small, but he sees them, he loves that, he can multiply that. The way you take small steps to honor your parents, to ask for help through accountability, the moment you say you're sorry, the moment you begin to pray for your enemy, it's a faithful life 
It's a hidden life. It's a life of obedience to Jesus in the small things. And we trust that the great gardener who grows the tree and the great baker who bakes a feast for the village, he'll grow it. He'll grow it. All you and I do is we show up with two fish and five loaves of bread. And we're like, can you use this? (laughs) He's like, I can use that. I will use it. I'll use it. We're called to live hidden lives of faithfulness to Jesus. I want to show you what Jesus does with all of his power. The night before he's crucified, he gathers with his 12 disciples for the Passover meal. And here's what happens at the meal. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Notice verse 3. The Father puts all things under his power. That's Jesus. So who has all the power? Jesus. Jesus has all the power, okay? So therefore, here's what happens. Jesus gets up, takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. But only slaves wash the feet of those uh, who have dirty feet in Jesus' day. It's only slaves. The, word, the Greek word here is doulos, which is a household slave or servant. So what does Jesus do with all of his power? Does he move in battle mode across a risk board? No. With all his power, he kneels down and he picks up dirty feet of the the disciples that he loves and he begins to wash them. And right there, that's the mustard seed. Right there, that's the yeast starting to work through the dough. Right there, that's the acorn that will become an oak tree. It's what power looks like. It's the kingdom of small beginnings. And it should be instructional for us in our life because I'm so tempted to believe that God is taking back his world through political power or financial power or becoming the moral majority or crushing our enemies or protests or campaigns or whatever. It's all on fire revolution extreme. But the more I look at the kingdom of Jesus, the more I see his delight in small steps of obedience lived in a hidden life. So North Langley, don't despise the day of small things. The other day I was reflecting on my life, and it's funny that as years go by, the more you look in the rearview mirror and you go, oh, that's what God was doing. (laughs) During those two years that I was home back in Oklahoma, um, I was dating Tanya long distance, And I was really wanting to come back to Canada. And so I wasn't sure the band thing was really working. And, but I had, I had had these really big dreams of being a global missionary, of maybe working in another country and sharing the good news of Jesus in Latin America or Africa or something like that. And I went to Trinity and I got my degree in that. It was intercultural religious studies. And I was hoping to, 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 to live somewhere else in the world. And, uh, and, then, and then I was in a band, and so I was like, oh, well, I'd give up the missionary dream to be in a band. <laughs> That'd be cool. And then I was, thought I'd be in a band, and, and it was all really big, right? Which I, just so you know, I, God can do really big things and has done things. Obviously, there are people in bands, and there are global missionaries. But one of the most interesting things that he did was in 2004, um, 
he shut all kinds of doors in my life, all kinds of doors. And I found myself um, crossing the line. I was going to school at Regent College, but I would drive across the line to Whatcom County, and I worked for an organization that cared for adults with special needs. And so for two years, full time, I got to care for two guys that had um, uh, uh, mental and physical disabilities. Both were nonverbal. And, and man, I spent my day cutting up their food and giving them medication and t taking care of them physically. And when I, I was processing this in the last couple of weeks when I was preparing to teach today, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> this is like, I don't know when that was. What, what year was that? 20, this is almost 20 years later. This is 18 years later. I'm seeing what God was doing. He was healing my heart. Uh, I think some people can go do global mission and some people can be in bands, but not me. I think he had to do something. I think he had to show me the beauty in the small acts of care and love for two people who couldn't thank me back and how important those two years were for me. And to be honest, it was just only last couple of weeks that I started processing that and seeing how God kind of led me that way. And that shaped me. And I trust that those little small moments with these two men, one of them has actually passed away. I got to attend his, his memorial and, and to be with his family. But that, that was shaping me in the small ways. And the other thing, and the other thing is that um, some of you will know that uh, when you go to Christian conferences, um, feels like I'm really bashing on Christian culture here. I, I, I'm not, actually. I'm just, I'm in it. So, <laughs> so you just see a lot. Of, so if you go to conferences or in general, I think I've said this to you guys before, but there's this thing where like God is always working overseas or in downtown centers. He's never in the burbs. It's like God has left the burbs. <laughs> it's like, nope, there's no good stories anywhere in suburbs. But if you're talking downtown Vancouver, oh, there's tons of cool stories. Or they're somewhere else in the world. And, and I remember just like, I actually had to write a paper on Jesus in the suburbs because I was like, what is the deal? It's <laughs> like, not, there's, feels like nothing is going on. And, and there's this whole story that I've told you before about God using this vision of his love for this, love for Walnut Grove. And, um, but I want to share this uh, beautiful line from a poem. I think it's a uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins poem called When Kingfishers Catch Fire. But anyway, there's a line. And it's Eugene Peterson riffs on this line, but it's that Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ plays in 10,000 places. What does that mean? That in every life and face that you look at, Christ is playing out his love and his grace and his story of redemption. And it's almost like I want to catch everyone's eyes here. <laughs> and say Christ is playing out his grace and his love in each one of you. This is not about downtown or about the other side of the way. This is about seeing that Christ is playing out his grace and his love in each one of you. Christ plays in 10,000 places. And, and, and I think for me, one of the big lessons is, is rather than, you know, dreaming about what downtown Vancouver or somewhere on the other side of the world, and I'm like, no, every day, you and I get to look into each other's faces and pray for each other and open the Bible together 
and be in life groups together. And when we look across the room, we see that Christ is playing out his grace and his love in 10,000 places. And each one of you is like a burning bush on fire with the glory of God. God is at work in your life. And there are these moments of holy ground where you go, he's here. He's working here. He loves you. He, he will not despise the small thing that is found in you and in me. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Believe me, if you have but a spark of desire after Christ, he has a whole furnace of desire after you. I have to read that again. Believe me, if you have but a small spark of desire after Christ, he has a whole furnace of desire after you. If you have but this small spark, he sees it. He does not despise it. He takes it. He cherishes it. And he meets you with this whole furnace of desire for you. He will not despise the small thing in you. Now he'll nurture it. And he'll blow the spirit upon it. And so we bring the small seed of desire for him. And he'll grow something beautiful. Will you stand? We want to pray. We want to ask God's spirit to come and move in the room. And so if you would, would you, if, if you feel comfortable, would you close your eyes? And would, just with your hands outstretched. Sometimes it, there's nothing magical about it. It's just holding our hands out. And, um, and what do you have in those hands? You have... Uh, you have that, like, that little boy who came to Jesus and he's got, um, he's got two fish and he's got five loaves and you wonder what God could do with that. <laughs> well, today we're not going to despise the small things and so we come and we offer it to the king. And so would you, just in, in your heart, would you offer what you have to the king? Offer that small spark of desire if that's all you got, that's good. <laughs> He'll take it. Some of you feel like all you can offer is an exhaustion after praying for many years for your loved ones, maybe to know Jesus. And so you just offer that to the king. Jesus, you see what we have in our hands. And in many ways, when I look at what's in my hands, it just, it just does not feel like very much at all. When I think of my lack of desire, it, it feels so insignificant and small but we come to you and we offer in humility, just with outstretched hands, we offer what little we have and we would pray that in your mercy you would take it and that you would multiply it and that you would grow it. North Langley, here in a minute, um, our prayer team would love to pray for you. They're just, if you're new to this room, this is in the back, back wall on your left, and our team would love to pray. 
I would encourage you, if some of you are led to, just turn to your, the person you're with here to pray together. Maybe to offer up your family or your loved ones to the Lord. Ask for prayer. <laughs> you know, it could be right here, and I just, that one of you may need to turn to the person next to you to apologize for something. And there could be a beautiful seed, a tiny mustard seed of healing in this room. I don't know. What does God want to do? <laughs> so Jesus, would you come and do what you want to do? Heal us, move in the room. We offer you our hearts and we ask that you would come and we bring this small little spark of desire and pray that you would pour this furnace of desire after us. We love you and thank you. 